Mark chapter 9, starting reading at verse 30. This is God's word. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent on the road, for they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavour, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Amen. And thank God that he speaks to us when we read his truth. I read an interesting article during the week by a Church of England evangelist called Glenn Scrivener. And he was talking about the outrage that we feel towards Boris and his government for all of the the parties that were going on over the last two years whenever the rest of the country has been in lockdown. Now, in fact, whenever I was was writing this sermon uh, during the week, I thought, you know, Boris will be gone by the time it gets to Sunday. 
Um, but Mr. Teflon has, has stuck on. Uh, he's, he's lasted this far, but we don't know what will happen in the rest of the week. I'm, I'm sure that, that most of us have shared some kind of anger, some kind of outrage, or, or at least we have some thoughts on, on what was going on in Downing Street while the rest of us were locked up in our homes. We weren't allowed to leave our own property. Well, Glenn Scrivener comments in his article that it's not so much the fact that Boris and his team broke the rules that bothers us, that does bother us, but what really bothers us is the fact that they were the ones who made the rules and then they broke them. They couldn't even keep them themselves. But what he goes on to point out in this article is that throughout history, well, that's exactly what it meant to rule. To be a ruler meant that you got to make the rules and everybody else had to follow them. In, in Babylonian or, or Greek or Roman society, being a ruler meant I can do what I like and everyone else has to do as I say. That's what it meant to rule. And so Scrivener says the outrage that we feel about the Downing Street parties is actually a Christian outrage. It's actually Christian. It's only with a biblical worldview that it makes sense to be outraged at hypocrisy in our leaders. It's only because of the Jesus revolution that we have leaders who are actually meant to serve the people. Boys and girls, I wonder if you knew what the word minister means. Minister means servant. That's what minister means. It means servant. So I am a servant as your minister. And so what does that mean for the prime minister of the country? Well, it means he is the chief or the first servant. His role exists to serve. That's why we're annoyed. That's why we're outraged. Because they haven't been serving. I hope you can see how that relates to the passage we've read from Mark chapter 9 today. The the disciples and Jesus, well, they're out on the road uh, traveling again from Galilee to Capernaum. And as they travel, the disciples start arguing among themselves. And we find this quite often, don't we, in Mark, that, that the disciples arguing is a good opportunity for Jesus to interject with some teaching. Well, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. Who will be the greatest? You see, in their minds at the time, that was a reasonable discussion to have. They were following Jesus. And Jesus was not only willing to call himself the Messiah. Well, Peter, James and John went up the mountain and saw, they saw the glory of God unveiled in Christ. So the disciples are getting excited. And they're starting to think, what's the cabinet going to look like whenever Jesus takes charge of Jerusalem? You see, their expectation is that Jesus will storm the capital and he will take over. They expect him to overthrow the Roman occupiers and set up his kingdom over the land. And as his closest followers, these 12, they they assumed they were going to get good jobs in the new regime. And so as they walked along the road, they wondered, 
who's going to be the greatest among us? And for them, in their kind of Roman or Greek mindset, that's a reasonable way to think. That was what they would aspire to. In in that mindset, being great in the corridors of power is something people would have desired. But with one sentence, Jesus brings a new way of thinking and a new way of teaching for the disciples. And with that one sentence, Jesus revolutionizes the world. He changes the way that our world thinks about power and thinks about ruling. You can see it there, verse 35. You see what Jesus says? This is revolutionary. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And so Jesus takes the idea of ruling and he turns it on his head. And that teaching, the, the teaching of Jesus in Mark 9, well, it's impacted down through the centuries and it comes to us today. So that many people don't even know that they're expressing biblical outrage. But that's what they're doing when they see hypocrisy in the actions of Boris Johnson. It's this upside-down way of the kingdom of God that's our major focus in our passage today. We're in this section of Mark's gospel where Jesus has, well, he's finally convinced the disciples of who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And now he is teaching them what that means. What does it mean to be part of his kingdom? What it means is to follow him as our Messiah. And the overriding sense that we get from Jesus in this section is that we have to go through suffering before there is going to be any glory. There must be death before the resurrection. Jesus has to face the cross before we see the empty tomb. And so Jesus is teaching the disciples and he's teaching us today that following him means giving up your own ideas. It means giving up your own desires. It means putting away the the human notions of glory and grandeur and instead submitting all of your hopes, all of your ambitions, all of your plans to Jesus for his kingdom and for his glory. And we don't do it in in a poor me, aren't I hard done by kind of way but in a genuine attempt to seek first the kingdom of God. Knowing that it is there in the kingdom of God, that's where true blessing is found. Friends, the Christian life is not to be lived with ourselves at the centre. Being great in God's kingdom means giving up your life for Jesus. In other words, Christians' disciples must put their self to death so that we can live for Christ. I think we see that in two distinct ways in this passage. First, living for Christ means putting status to death. And second, living for Christ means putting sin to death. So we put status to death and we put sin to death. Let's start with status. Living for Christ means putting status to death. In the church, we can be as guilty as anyone of putting ourselves above others, seeking positions of power and status. 
But that's not how things should be for disciples of Christ. In order to demonstrate his teaching in verse 35, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. What does Jesus do? He takes a little child. He takes a little child into his arms. Now, the the idea in the Gospels that Jesus loves the little children, well, that's very clear. That's easy for us to see. But there's more going on here than just that. In this society, the disciples knew children have no status whatsoever. They're, They're just not valuable. They exist under the care of other people. They're almost like property. But Jesus wants to teach the disciples an important lesson about status. He wants to show the disciples that in the kingdom of God, those who have low status or even those who have no status, like a little child, well, they should be received like anyone else. Jesus goes so far as to say, when you embrace those of low status, you are receiving Christ and all the benefits that God bestows on those who receive Christ. I think there's application here for us, isn't there? How do we view children in our church? Boys and girls, I want you to know that you are as welcome here as anybody else. This is your place. As much as it belongs to anybody else, it belongs to you. You're so welcome here, boys and girls, young people. The way to be great in God's kingdom is not to seek to be in power. It's not to seek to rule over people. We don't seek to be the ones who make rules and then make sure that other people follow those rules. The way to be great in God's kingdom is to serve other people. It's to live for the good of other people. It's to welcome and receive and honour and respect other people. To treat other people as Christ would treat them. With forgiveness. And with grace. You know, we have people in this room who are a big deal in their working life. We have school teachers. We have school principals even. People who manage businesses. People who have staff working for them. But here in church, your status in the world doesn't mean a thing. In the church, we are all one. From the youngest to the oldest. From the smartest to the other end. From the richest to the poorest. We all share in this kingdom of God. And we all serve in the kingdom of God. We don't seek status. We we put status to death so that we can live for Christ. And this is also demonstrated in our passage with the conversation Jesus has with John in verses 38 to 41. It seems as if John is, is looking for some kind of compliment from Jesus. He tells Jesus, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. I want you to hear what John is saying very carefully. He's telling Jesus, Jesus, there are other people out there and they are doing things 
for the kingdom of God. They're doing good stuff, but we stop them because they're not part of the twelve. They're not part of our gang, Jesus. Someone is doing something in the name of Christ, but because they're not part of our gang, will we forbid him? Aren't we guilty of this kind of thinking at times? I know I am. I have to hold my hands up at this. Thinking that it's only within our little group, our little tribe of Christianity that that good is done for the kingdom of God. Friends, Jesus has disciples in other denominations. Even in other non-reformed churches. I think we are on good biblical footing to have certain ways of describing the true church. But that doesn't mean we exclude the truth that there are followers of Jesus outside of our camp. Do you notice what John says? He says that this person does not follow us. John is basing who is in and who is out upon his own recommendation. He's saying being part of the 12 disciples, well, that's some kind of status symbol. We are the ones who can decide who is in and who is out. But Jesus knocks John's thinking on the head. It's not John who decides. It's not John who decides who is in the kingdom and who is not. It is Jesus. And Jesus wants John and us to know that he who is not against us is on our side. We live in a time when there are many people living in outright sinfulness. There are many people living lives which mock and offend God. We're in the minority. So we need as many allies and friends as we can get. We shouldn't judge those who are living outwardly holy lives and claiming to do so in the name of Christ. We shouldn't judge them simply because they don't belong to our gang. In the kingdom of God, we put status to death so that we can live for Christ. That means that we are not the judges of who's in and who's out. If someone is genuinely doing the work of the kingdom in the name of Christ, then they're with us. Because we're both on the Lord's side. The status of judging someone's faith, well, that belongs to Jesus. And it belongs to him alone. Jesus is teaching us today that true disciples of Christ, from whatever denomination or group or tribe, we don't worry about status. We're simply concerned with the service of others for the glory of Christ. Even if that service is as simple as giving somebody a drink of water. But then in verse 42, Jesus moves his teaching. He moves on to a much more harsh teaching. Not only do we put status to death, living for Christ means putting sin to death. My friends, Jesus has more to say about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus says more about hell than he does about heaven. And so anyone who has a problem with hellfire preaching, and believe me, there are people out there who have a problem with it, well, then they have a problem with the preaching of Christ. 
In verses 42 to 50, we hear from Jesus that hell is a very real place. And it is horrendous. Firstly, he describes the punishment of hell as worse than having a large millstone tied around your neck and being thrown into the ocean. But if that image of drowning with no hope of survival isn't bad enough, Jesus describes hell further. See verse 48. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In fact, it's repeated, isn't it? Verse 44, 46 and 48. Think about the symbolism of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the torments of hell are everlasting. Hell is a place where a fire is constantly torturing the bodies of the damned. And there are worms eating at the corpses. But imagine the torment of a worm eating up your flesh while you're still able to feel it. And the worm will continue to eat your flesh for all eternity. You will never be fully consumed. Jesus says the worm does not die. Why does it not die? Because what it's feeding on is never consumed. This is a terrible, terrible reality. It's a reality for those who neglect to trust in Christ. There are people, and you've heard it said as well as I have, that people describe their life as hell on earth. But no matter how bad your situation, and people, some people are in horrible situations, I'm not belittling that. But no earthly suffering can compare to the everlasting torture of hell. I am sure that when we have entered into eternity, there will be people suffering in hell who would do anything to swap it for the pains of this life. How much, how much should this spur us on to evangelize, to talk to those around us who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour? Often we talk about people going to a lost eternity or an eternity without Christ, and those things are true, but Jesus does not use such sanitary language. Friends, it's horrible to say it, but those without Christ are going to an eternity of horrendous and unimaginable torture, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is far from academic for Jesus. This is real life. This is the place where sinners end up. And so Jesus says, stop sinning. When we hear this explanation of hell, it shouldn't surprise us that it would be better to lose a hand or a foot or an eye or all three. Sin is so serious. It leads us to hell. Jesus takes sin very seriously because it leads people to hell. And so in our lives, we must kill sin. Living for Christ means putting sin to death. Verses 43, 45 and 47 are graphic. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life maimed than having two hands go to hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet be cast into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than two eyes being cast into hell. The process of killing sin in our own lives is often referred to as mortification. And the the great Puritan writer John Owen wrote, he wrote a book called Mortification of Sin. And in that book, he says, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. Now, friends, this is, this is part of the process of sanctification. Okay, so, so we, let, let's get those, those distinctions in our mind. Unless you are trusting in Christ, you are headed for hell. And there's nothing you can do to clean your life up. That's what we've just discussed with the boys and girls. And when you trust in Christ, you are justified. You are made righteous in the sight of God. But there's also then the process of sanctification. In our Christian lives, we we start from our justification and that's where we are. That's how we exist. But then we want to continue killing sin in our lives and be sanctified. To become more and more like Jesus. To be made fit for heaven, as the carol says. To live there with Jesus. And so we must rid ourselves of our sin. Jesus gives us a drastic strategy. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, Jesus does not actually mean that you should go home and get out the bread knife. Bodily mutilation had no place in first century Judaism and it would have been seen as very wrong to mutilate the body. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's taking it to the extreme to show how serious he is about ridding sin from our lives. He says it would be better to enter life maimed than to go with two hands to hell. And my question for us today is, do we believe this? I've talked quite a bit about hell this morning. But what do we believe about heaven? Do we believe that everlasting life will be so joyful that we're willing to give up the temporary pleasures of earth to go there? Do we really believe that it's worth foregoing or, or, or giving up the fleeting and temporary pleasure of sin in order to enter life with Christ? Notice how Jesus speaks here. He talks about the hands, what we do. He talks about the feet, where we go. And he talks about the eyes, what we look at. Where are you going? What are you doing? What are you looking at? That you shouldn't be. It's entirely possible to watch things on our televisions now that would have been considered pornographic 60 years ago. And it's part of regular programming now. God's word hasn't changed in 60 years. Jesus says, pluck it out. Why does he say that? He says, hell will be worse than not having Netflix. Hell will be worse than not having sex outside of marriage. 
Hell will be worse than not indulging in gossip. Hell will be worse than not having that next drink or the next bite. Hell will be worse than allowing your self-righteous pride to fester. This is not pleasant, but it's absolutely essential. It's painful. Killing sin is painful. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes about this process. Listen to what he says. He says, imagine yourself as a house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing and you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing here. He's, he's putting an extra floor on there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, do you believe that the glory that awaits us will make foregoing any sin or status in the present moment worthwhile, even if it seems painful. In God's kingdom, we follow after Christ's example. That means we're different from the world around us. In the church, we live an upside down and back to front life. Or should I say, the world is back to front. The right way to live is the Jesus way. And living for Christ means putting status to death and putting sin to death. Our Lord Jesus didn't cling to status. He made himself low. He went to death on the cross. Why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross to kill sin. The very man whose lips said all of the difficult things that we've heard today. And these are from Jesus. The man who said that our bodies should be mutilated rather than living in sin. Well, he's the one whose body was mutilated. His body was broken. It was broken for you. What a gospel. What a comfort. Our sin has been dealt with. Not through me breaking my body, but by the body of Christ broken for me, broken on my behalf. Isn't that a fantastic motivation to fight sin in our lives? Why should we fight sin? Because Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died so it could be removed from you. What a fantastic motivation to give up my life and instead live for Christ and his everlasting glory. Let me pray for us.